Hi, my name's Katie and me and my family attend the five o'clock service and I'm going to be praying for us today. Dear God, thank you for creating us and the world we live in. Help us to be still and present as we pray to you today. We are sorry when we do not put you first and we ask for your forgiveness. Through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray for our nation and the world. We continue to pray for the coronavirus and all those affected by it, by, both here in Australia and across the world. Here in Australia, we pray that the spread will stop and, the, and that officials will be able to contain the current cases. We pray for all those who are anxious about the future. Please give them a sense of peace that goes beyond our understanding. We pray for our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and our Premier, Gladys Berejiklian. Give them wisdom and wise counsel that they may lead our communities to respond to this crisis with calm and generosity. Assist them to gov govern for the good of all. We pray for those on the front line of providing medical treatment. Please protect health work healthcare workers from both infection and the anxious frustrations of the patients they are treating. We pray for those in our community and beyond who are sick, grieving or struggling with any other issues. Lord, we pray that you will comfort and heal them and that they will know that you are with them. We will now take a minute to think or pray silently for people we know who need help. Lord, you alone are the hope and healer of your people. You have promised us the hope of a world where there will be no more sorrow, sickness or dying. Comfort and heal, God, all who are in sorrow, need, sickness, or any other trouble. Lord God, your Son, Jesus Christ, has promised you that you will hear us when we ask in faith. Receive the prayers we offer. Amen. My name is Andy, and I attend the 6.30 service. Today, we're going to be reading from Mark 8, verses 27 to 38. So I'll give you a moment to get your Bibles ready. Okay. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are my Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in the mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
Hi, I'm John Dixon, and uh, it's great to be with you back in my happy place here in Manly uh, for the next three weeks, sort of picking up where I left off in January. Man, that seemed a long time ago. Uh, looking at the life of Jesus and the remarkable uh, contribution that he has made in the world. Uh, I may have mentioned before this extraordinary 2013 study published by Cambridge University Press, where two information scientists, uh, Stephen Skinner and Charles Ward, analysed the relative historical impact of about a thousand historical figures and suggested, according to their algorithm, that Jesus was the most influential figure in world history. And both of them were non Christians. He is incredibly influential. I think many people agree with that. The problem is there are so many um, differing portraits of Jesus, impressions. You could even say projections that we have uh, about Jesus. You think of those 1960s, 70s films, which some of you have not had the pleasure of watching, uh, that portrayed Jesus as a kind of hippie figure, certainly white, uh, uh, blue eyes, and sort of hovered around, sort of above, you know, the, the worries of the world. Uh, this was um, broken in, in its tradition by Martin Scorsese, the famous director, who uh, had this film... Um, the Last Temptation of Christ, where Jesus appears as a kind of uh, raging, earthy, misunderstood prophet, sexually repressed as well. Um, Mel Gibson tried to sort of bring it back to um, Christianity by portraying Jesus in the film uh, The Passion of the Christ, where basically Jesus is beaten up for 90 minutes, if that's how you like your son of God, and that's the film to watch. Uh, interestingly, Mambo has their own Jesus as well. This is uh, the Mambo Jesus who's uh, at the footy, and uh, this is the miracle of the pies and the beer. And of course, some people, like our new atheist friends, reckon that Jesus may not have lived at all. Um, the temptation is to project onto Jesus our own preferences. And in this short series, what I want to try and do is avoid projection and instead focus on reliable historical portraits of Jesus. Uh, three of them. Just one this week. And uh, we're going to be relying on historical and biblical information and trying not to sort of lay over... Uh, over that portrait, our own sort of impression of who we want Jesus to be. And today, uh, we begin with perhaps the most obvious of all the things you could say about Jesus, and also one of the most uh, misunderstood. It's the claim that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that uh, when I was growing up in a completely non-Christian household, I honestly thought Christ was Jesus' surname um, because people would talk about Jesus Christ this, Jesus Christ that, like you might say um, Bill Gates or Bruce Clark. Um, it just seemed like there had to have been uh, Mr. and Mrs. Christ, Grandpa Christ, and you know, down the Christ family tree you go. I had no idea at the time that Christ or Messiah uh, is a prestigious title for two religions, 
not just one. Uh, there is a Christ in Judaism, which is the first thing I want to explore before we even think about the Christ of Christianity. Every day, our Orthodox Jewish neighbours pray for the coming of a descendant of King David from 1000 BC, uh, who will establish Israel and give Israel peace and rule over all the nations. Um, here's something from the Siddur or Jewish prayer book that is one of the daily prayers our Orthodox Jew Jewish friends um, pray. And prayer number 15 says, the offspring of your servant David, may you speedily cause to flourish, for we hope for your salvation all day long. And in the um, grace that Orthodox uh, Jewish neighbours say um, over meals each day, there's an explicit reference to the Messiah. Have mercy, our God, on Israel, your people, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed. And we see here the all-important word anointed. This is the word Mashiach in Hebrew or Christos in Greek, Messiah, a Christ. And this idea of an anointed one, a Messiah or a Christ, goes back to the Jewish scriptures or what Christians call the Old Testament. So King David himself, uh, 1000 BC or about that, um, in Samuel 16, is anointed when he becomes king. The Lord said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed, this is the word Mashiach or Christos, David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Um, the anointing is the anointing of a king who would rule on God's behalf. Now, uh, later prophets in Israel drew on this idea and predicted that there would one day come a truly anointed one who would have all of God's spirit to rescue Israel and rule the nations. For example, Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, that's David's family name, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. This is the Christ or Messiah that our Jewish neighbors the Orthodox Jewish neighbours anyway, pray for every day, long for. In the Jewish faith, the Christ or Messiah is the king descended from David and anointed by God to save Israel and rule the nations. And the thing is, it's only when we really get this that we can appreciate the scandal at the heart of the Christian faith the claim that Jesus is this Messiah. He is Christos. And so let's pivot to Christ in Christianity. This is the claim at the heart of the Gospels, those first century biographies of his life. In fact, it 
almost literally is the heart of Mark's gospel in uh, our passage today in Mark chapter 8. The interesting thing is, if you um, unraveled an original scroll of Mark's gospel and folded it right in the middle, it would fall on our passage today, Mark chapter 8, where Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ. This is literally the heart of the gospel. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are Hochristos, Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So Jesus asks them who they reckon he is. And it's a question you'd want to get right. I mean, they've seen for a couple of years by now, uh, Jesus teaching extraordinary things, um, healing people. They've gained an impression. And in the middle of his public ministry, he turns to them and he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter gets it right. Jesus is more than a teacher a healer, he's more than a prophet. He is Christos. he is the Messiah. It is really difficult to exaggerate how big a deal this title is in the New Testament. Um, I mean, just to do a simple uh, word count and compare this word with lots of other really big ticket items in the New Testament, consider this. The word saviour appears 25 times in the New Testament. It's a, it's a really important idea, obviously. Uh, the word teacher, didaskalos, appears 50 times. It's pretty important. What about the word love, agape? It's 100 times, as you'd kind of expect. But Christos, Messiah, appears 500 times in the New Testament. It is a really big deal. And it's a claim that was heard well outside Christian circles. Non-Christians heard that people thought Jesus was the Christ. Here are a couple of really good examples from the ancient world, non-Christian texts. Uh, This is uh, Josephus in Jewish antiquities. He's a um, first century Jewish writer, not a Christian writer. And yet he mentions, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. He was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was called the Christ. And the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Almost sounds like he thinks Christianity will disappear any moment now. I think you'd get a shock how it all turned out. Here's uh, Tacitus, the greatest of ancient Rome's chroniclers. I mean, in classics and ancient history departments, they rely on Tacitus more than probably any other writer from the period. But he mentions in passing that Christians derived their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The central unapologetic claim of Christianity is that Jesus is this descendant of King David, anointed by God, to save Israel and rule the nations. Uh, Jesus is, according to Christianity, the Christ. 
the difference between the first century Jewish expectation uh, of who the Christ would be and the Christ that the Christians proclaimed as a result of what Jesus taught is pretty clear. Uh, Jesus said he would rule as Christ, not by the sword, but by a cross. He is Christ on a cross. Um, the historical thing to understand is that many in Jesus' day um, longed for a ruler who would conquer the Romans. The Romans had um, occupied Israel from 63 BC. And by the time of Jesus, people were fed up and wanted the Messiah to come and smash the sinners and establish Israel uh, as a place of peace and rule over the nations. And so Christ and Messiah was interpreted in a military fashion, even by many of Jesus' own disciples. Um, here's a good example. This is a manifesto uh, written by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem uh, about 50 BC, so just a decade or so after the Romans arrived. And it describes the contemporary Jewish hopes for uh, the Messiah. I got to play with this particular text called the Psalms of Solomon uh, some years ago. But here's the job description of the Messiah. See, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, in righteousness to drive out the sinners, to smash the arrogance of sinners, there will be no unrighteousness among them in his days, for their king shall be the Lord Messiah. This is what Peter and no doubt some of the other disciples were hoping for in their Messiah. And that's why Peter can't cope with what Jesus says next in our passage. So Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah the Christ. Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him yet because he's got a lot more to teach them about, about what this means. But then we read, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter was so taken by the military idea of a Messiah that he has the audacity to rebuke Jesus, whom he's just declared Messiah, when Jesus says he's going to die instead of conquer, uh, Peter obviously was projecting onto Jesus his own preferences, something that's really easy to do. But he must have got the shock of his life when, according to this passage, um, Jesus turns his back on Peter. That's what's going on here, because Peter rebukes Jesus, and then it says Jesus turned to his disciples, in other words, put Peter to his back and said, get behind me, Satan. When the one you've just called Messiah says, get behind me, Satan, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> you've made a big mistake. I mean, the thing is, um, Peter doesn't have in mind the concerns of God, Jesus says, but earthly concerns, military concerns. Because the concern of God, according to Jesus, is that the Messiah would die. 
He would suffer and give his life on a cross because God doesn't want to destroy his enemies. He's not about conquering. He's about saving. He wants to welcome his own enemies into his family. This is why Jesus' mission was to die, not conquer. He was to bear the judgment the enemies of God deserve. Instead of seeing them conquered, he wanted to save them so they might be welcomed. You know, um, friends of mine have these um, mates in town who own a really posh uh, jewellery store. And uh, some years ago now, quite a few years ago now, um, this American gentleman walked into their store and asked if he could buy a pink argyle diamond. These things are worth about 20 grand. And that, they were the kind of shop that had that. And as they were doing the transaction and the guy was purchasing the diamond, the computer froze. And the American gentleman just leant over, uh, offered a bit of advice, and the computer came back to life. And the woman, the, this friend of my friend, uh, said, oh, you know a little about computers, do you? And he just smiled and um, nodded and finished the transaction and walked out of the store. Only later, when they were looking through the receipts, did she zero in on the name of the person she'd just sold this to. Um, she had literally just sold a pink argyle diamond to a Mr. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. And um, you can imagine she felt a little silly for having asked him, do you know a little about computers, when this is the guy who changed the computer industry uh, worldwide. I mean, that's a true story, but it also reminds me of something that is equally true of our topic. Uh, people have low estimations of Jesus when he's right in front of them. Uh, some people just underestimate uh, Jesus, think of him as a life coach or a teacher or something. Others um, have a reverence for Jesus, maybe even think of him as divine, but have overlooked that his real mission was to die and rise for us, not to just be the conqueror, the Lord, but to save us and welcome us into God's family. Um, both are projections onto Jesus of our own thoughts and preferences. When the truth is, Jesus as the Christ has all of the authority of God and all of the love of someone who would give himself for us so that we'd be welcomed into God's kingdom.